This afternoon, <coughs> we have a very helpful, heart-searching message from our brother, Hilsden, emphasising unity. We have just sung a hymn which kept on saying, separated. And so we are going to be very opposite this evening. And instead of that being a contradiction, it will be a confirmation. Because you cannot have a unity without you have difference. Will you say, how do you prove that? Well, I have, say, in front of me a barrel of fruit. Apples, pears, plums. Well, if I divide them, then I shall put plums in one basket and apples in another and whatever it is, so that the sheer act of differing produces a unity. So that instead of my subject being in opposition, it's just turning over and showing the other side. In the chapter that we had read, in Philippians chapter 1, our version reads, uh, that ye may, verse 10, that ye may approve things that are excellent. And the margin says, that you may prove the things that differ. You cannot possibly approve things that are excellent if you think they're all one and the same. One must differ from another if one is going to be better or worse. So that this evening, without collaboration with our speaker this afternoon, I think I made that clear before, that we don't suggest to one another, what are you going to talk about? And then if you talk about that, I'll talk about this. No, no. We seek to get the message from the Lord and if I have to stand up here and say practically the same thing he said this afternoon, I'll say, right, two knocks at the door perhaps are more important than one. Perhaps you need it, you see. But when I heard the emphasis upon unity, I thought, yes, we're going to get the obverse side, the other side, you see. Because you cannot have unity without diversity. Otherwise, it's simply an amalgam and that's more or less what we see, don't we? My mind goes back as you uh, realise, I'm now being numbered among the old folk, and uh, the young men dream dreams, says the scripture, they're looking forward, and the old men, they, uh, oh no, the young men have visions, that's right, and the old men, they dream dreams of that which is past. I must be a split between the two, because I seem to get both. Well, thinking about this meeting and the fellowship we have here, every one of you has come a distance. Every one of you knows what you're in for before you come, or most of you do. My mind went right back 52 years. After having taken a stand for the question of right division, dispensational truth, that special revelation given to Paul the prisoner. Some folks who have, were reading articles in Things to Come and the early volume of the Varian uh, Expositor, they engaged for a period of time the Hoban Town Hall. And that was my first opportunity of speaking in this city uh, to any congregation of any size. It had been a little beating here in somebody's house. And I go right back to that day 
and I'm going to read to you the text that I took. It would be interesting, wouldn't it, if you all had a sheet of paper and you said, I reckon he spoke on, you know, you see. Well, I'm going to tell you, I lifted the verse out of a minor prophet, the prophet Haggai. And this was the text that I used with my first opportunity to speak to a company of about 250 people at the first meeting held of that series in Hoban Town Hall. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message. That's where I started. And you can see, possibly, the relevance of that. Here we have stressed in this very meeting, and in all our meetings, that we believe with all our hearts that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And when Paul wrote that, he must have meant particularly the Old Testament. For the New Testament was in being, it wasn't complete. So all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the sheer fact that we've got it bound together in one volume is also a comfort and a blessing. But it can be misunderstood. This Bible was never given by God as one book to be left lying about for somebody to come along and say, oh, it's an interesting looking book, let's read it. Never came like that. It was always a message sent by God by the hand of a special messenger to a certain type of people. Only afterwards did it become all scripture that we can sit down and profitably read. But the law was given to that particular people, Israel in the first case, and not to the nations of the earth round about. Afterwards it can be used by God in another sense. And so our subject this evening is that while we stress the unity of the spirit and the unity of the faith, it means that our other companies and other callings and other parts of scripture that we have to remember belong to other people. Whether there are three or more distinct callings may be a matter of careful search. But take them in the large. There are three companies that are given the firstborn's position under the term adoption. And Romans 9 says, to, with regard to Israel according to the flesh, the very first thing that he picks out as being that distinctive blessing to whom pertaineth the adoption. That means the firstborn son. And then we have in the uh, epistle to the Galatians and its parallel in Hebrews, the new Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem, and they have the adoption, a firstborn son. And then we have the first chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, blessed not in the new Jerusalem, and blessed not in Palestine, but blessed where Christ sits at the right hand of God, and they have the adoption. So there are three families, three distinct families, so that if we blend them together, we shan't know whether we're on earth or in heaven, and it'll be just an amalgam. We are not tearing the book to pieces. We are honouring the fact that every part of this book was originally sent. You get the last book in the Bible, the great book of the Revelation, 
dealing with prophetic times, the day of the Lord, but it was sent to a special company, and through them we can read it. So I felt that it would be perhaps wise to dwell upon this thought. Fifty-two years ago, I felt it was important, and strangely enough, although we're supposed to get wise as we grow old, I don't think I made much of a mistake somehow. It was an insistence that this book contained a message and it was sent by a messenger and it was sent to a people. And that to a large extent is what we mean when we speak of dispensational truth or when we speak about rightly dividing the word of truth. There are some things which are basic doctrine that speaks of sin well, that doesn't belong to any one of us. It belongs to the whole wide world. For all have sinned, whether Jew or Gentile. And the great redemptive work of Christ is not limited to one calling or another. But after you've passed those barriers or gateways, you discover that some are to be blessed in the earth and some in the heavenly Jerusalem and some as members of the body of Christ we immediately observe the need for this principle of right division. So, when Philippians was emphasising to try the things that differ, it wasn't contradicting what had already been written in Ephesians to keep the unity of the Spirit, for they never could keep the unity of the Spirit if they muddled it all up and didn't know whether they belonged to Jew, Gentile or Church of God and stand up and sing their marching design when they ought to have been thinking about seated where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Well, there it is. So, shall we just uh, use the time we have in seeking a little guidance in connection with this word messenger, message, sent. (coughs) You do know that um, the word angel gives us the word evangel, and the word angel means a spiritual (coughs) messenger, and the evangel is the message that he brings. God complained about some in the prophecy of Jeremiah who spoke a vision of their own heart and say, and say, he sent us. He said, I sent them not. When the apostle raised the question about faith, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, he said, how shall they hear without a preacher? And how should they preach? Except they go to college. Oh yes, college is very good. I wish I'd been there. But he doesn't say that. He says, how should they preach except they be sent? So Paul said he was an ambassador. An ambassador sent to represent a distant ruler. The very word apostle that we use so much is made up of two words. Apo, away from. Stello, I send. I send someone from myself to represent me. Now the chiefest of the apostles is not Paul nor Peter. You say, well, who is he then? Hebrews chapter 3 says, consider him the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And he said, he that receiveth me receiveth you, receiveth me, and he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. So an apostle is one sent. 
and he has a message to give and it's implied in, required of him that it's faithfully delivered. The messenger is not supposed to steam the envelope open and put a nice little bit at the bottom and stick it down again. Of course, if you live in a country village, you can inquire what's happening to the people next door because the postman is so keen to read all the information that comes by person <coughs> that's available. Uh, but um, the messenger is not responsible for his message. He is responsible for faithful delivery. And so that it's an important thing to distinguish between saying you are followers of Paul. That could be misunderstood. He says, who then is Paul? Who then is Paul? Was Paul crucified for you? So we mustn't overdo that side, but we say no. God in his sovereignty chose this bigoted Pharisee, changed him into a humble, faithful, long-suffering servant and sent him out to you and to be Gentiles in our darkness. And when the time came and he was put into prison by the enemy of truth, then in that prison he received a revelation in which we we to this day rejoice. In that prison he received a witness from Christ that although there seemed to be a spoke in the wheel, that Israel had been prevented from accepting their Messiah, and there was nothing written in the Bible to show you what God would do if Israel failed, God said no. A wise general doesn't broadcast all his strategy, for he knows the enemy is watching. So before the foundation of the world, before the world began, he had a secret part of his purpose that was never put into the book until it was entrusted to Paul as the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Well now let's think of this from the way in which folks get sometimes into difficulties and problems as they approach the word of God. For instance, we start with the Gospel according to Matthew. And uh, I think in one uh, commentary I have at home, the writer very sincerely says that the Sermon on the Mount is the quintessence of Christianity. What you say is a very wonderful sermon, so it is. I read in Matthew the 16th chapter, that's a long way after the Sermon on the Mount. I read in Matthew the 16th chapter that when our Saviour began for the first time to speak of his death and resurrection, Peter always said it cannot be. He had to withstand Christ. Now when the Sermon on the Mount was uttered by our Lord, not one of his disciples and not one of those who heard him had then been told that Christ had come to die upon a cross but the 16th chapter reveals that Peter, who had preached the gospel of the kingdom earlier, and had signs following, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, he preached a gospel which did not contain a reference to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yet when I come to the testimony of the Apostle Paul, he says, we preach Christ crucified, right at the beginning of it. 
So you see, it's one thing to say what a wonderful teaching the Sermon on the Mount is. But it's another thing to try to impose that upon someone who didn't come under that regime. You and I come under a different calling. We ought to walk worthy of our calling and we shall find ourselves in step with many things in the Sermon on the Mount. But not all of them because they belonged to a people that were set apart for that purpose. So I come to the fact that there are four Gospels. One person, one life, one death, one resurrection, but four different Gospels. And men of God have spent half their lifetime trying to make a harmony of the four Gospels. And they've had to give it up. The only one who, who could have given us a harmony of the four Gospels is God, and he didn't do it. Or, we have Matthew, Mark and Luke fairly early, but John, right to the very end, when all the apostles had gone, he wrote his fourth Gospel, the Gospel according to John. And instead of running in and saying, well now I'll put you all right with regard to the problems you have about this particular day of the resurrection or that particular thing, he never did. He gave you a few more problems. That is to say, there was a purpose distinction. That life had various facets. It was essential to the Gospel according to Matthew that we should have a genealogy at the front. Because the whole purpose of Israel to be a kingdom of priests. They had to establish their relationship. And this had to be brought right to an issue that the one who is now going to occupy our attention in the Gospel according to Matthew was the son of David. Otherwise, they couldn't listen to him. He would have no claim. But when I come to the Gospel according to Mark, there's no genealogy at all. Mark puts before us not the king, as Matthew does. Mark puts before us the servant. Immediately is one of the key words. And the very last verse in the last chapter, the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. Then Luke, who was the right-hand man of the Apostle Paul, right through to the end in his last imprisonment, his genealogy takes you right back beyond Abraham to Adam. And Paul is the only one in the New Testament apart from Luke who ever speaks of the name Adam. So here we have mankind. So when I look at the Gospel according to Matthew, I find that John the Baptist is reported to have said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But when I read Luke's Gospel, he says that John the Baptist also said repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew never says a word about forgiving sins. He's talking about a kingdom that's going to be set up. But Luke who was writing in harmony with Paul with whom he worked, he says, oh yes, but forgiveness of sins is involved. Matthew says uh, that in Bethlehem, is born this day the city of David, uh, a king. But Luke says, is born this day in the city of David, a saviour. Don't you see? They're not contradicting one another, but each messenger had his message and he gave it. Matthew, to demonstrate that Christ came as a king, was crucified with the very words over his head. 
the parables are parables of the kingdom. People use those parables and try to preach the gospel from them. But they weren't given for that purpose. They were the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So that you see, we're not losing anything if we put a book, a scripture in its right place. It's only by putting them in their right place that confusion ceases and we get the many facets of the person and work of Christ and the different callings. And of course, there's John who goes right back to the creation. In the beginning was the word and the climax where unbelieving, doubting Thomas falls on his knees and says, My Lord and my God. The one great point in John's Gospel is not to give you some peculiar calling. You're not quite sure where their destiny is to be enjoyed. The one great thing in John's Gospel is life through his name. And after you've got life through Christ, and only after you have life in him, is the time to begin to divide the word of God up as to Jew, Gentile, Church of God, Heaven, New Jerusalem and what not. So we're having this evening the other side of this afternoon. A blessed, wondrous unity into which we are called and which we are called upon to keep. But we can only do so by realising there are distinctions and differences that must be observed, otherwise they would intrude. Now this word that I've already mentioned, sent. I think I've got a note here as to the number of times it occurs in John's Gospel. I think I've got 60 references in one Gospel. Sent. When the blind man was told by Christ to go to the pool of Siloam, John even slips in brackets, the word Siloam means sent. And in that prayer of John 17, there is the concern of our Saviour that they may believe that thou hast sent me, that they may know that thou hast sent me. And in his first epistle, it sums it up, the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Sent. Sent. It's a rebuke to anybody to think that man could originate the gospel or originate the great goal of the ages. It's something that comes from God, and he sends it by a messenger that he has chosen. Well now, having said so far, you take the Acts of the Apostles. Shall we open the book this time, and look at the Acts of the Apostles, and see that that divides itself up into three sections by the emphasis upon the word sent. Now, first of all, we look at chapter 3. Chapter 3. In verse 19, Peter calls upon the assembled company, Repent ye therefore, and be converted. The day of Pentecost has passed. The baptism of the Spirit has taken place. And the man has been healed at the temple and Peter has pointed out that he is a type and a shadow of how the salvation must come through this risen Jesus of Nazareth. 
He sums it up here and says, um, verse 25, Ye are the children of the prophets. Now there's only one nation on earth to whom that could be addressed. <coughs> Ye are the children of the prophets. Uh, you'll find that to them, this people, pertain the adoption and the glory and the giving of the law and the prophets and all the things to do with the Old Testament. So he's speaking to a special people. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. Well, God never made any covenant with my fathers. In fact, I don't know who my fathers were. I can only go back a generation or two and then I don't know where I come from. I've been pelted in the opening in the early days for being a Jew who gave up the faith of his fathers and joined the Gentiles for what I got out of it. <laughs> so you see, I could never, I could never establish my claim to anything if I've got to appeal to my fathers. I think I've got a very good name for the work that I've been given to do. For the name Welsh means a foreigner. And a ministry to the foreigner is that which I rejoice in. Well, that's where we are. We can't say we are children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. That's where these kindreds of the earth come in, through the ministry of this chosen people. But I want to read a bit further. Now then, unto you first, God having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning everyone away from his iniquities. So here was the point where Peter said, this is the first movement. He sent him to you. But now these people, instead of repenting as a nation, oh, some did, blessed be God, but as a national repentance, no. There came a moment when we reached the Apostle Paul's ministry in chapter 13. And he, very much influenced by Stephen's speech that had brought about partly his conversion, he goes over the history of this people of Israel. And in verse 26, he's in the synagogue, this is what he says. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, but now he's going to add something. And whosoever among you Feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Until it was sent, the Gentile might wish he could believe, the Gentile might wish it was for him, but all the wishing in the world doesn't alter. If God didn't send the message to you, well, you've got no message. It must come from God. God is the one who's been offended by sin. God is the only one who can provide a saviour. And God is the only one who can decide when and where, and so on. And that these were Gentiles, you see, in verse 42, and when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And then in verse 46, when Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, 
No, we turn to the Gentile. So you can say the first part of the Acts of the Apostles, it was Jews only. And if you want the chapter and verse for that, it's chapter 11, that after the persecution that arose after Stephen, they went everywhere preaching the word to Jews only. Now comes the change. Not only men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, but whosoever among you, whosoever among you, and they turn out to be Gentiles. So now we've got a middle reference, Jew and Gentile linked together in this message. Now if you'll come to the end of Acts, the chapter 28, Chapter 28, we find the Apostle at Rome, and he longed to speak to those at Rome, he says so. But when he got the opportunity, he didn't see the church at Rome first of all. He called upon the elders of the Jews, and uh, they appointed him a day, verse 23, they came many to his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning to evening. Well, they didn't believe. Some believed, but only a minority. He quotes Isaiah chapter 6, for the last time, the heart of this people is wax gross. Verse 28, Be it known therefore unto you, that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Sent. This is the first time that the scriptures were sent to the Gentiles without the mediation of Israel. Even in the epistle to the Romans, which is so basic with regard to its doctrine of justification, it says, the Jew first. In even the preaching of the gospel, the Jew first. And also, the Greek. The figure in Romans is an olive tree in which the Gentiles were grafted contrary to nature, whereas the figure in Ephesians is a body with every member on absolute equality. So you see, you can't keep the unity of the spirit according to Ephesians. If you think you're a wild olive grafted contrary to nature, into the olive tree of Israel, because the figures won't march together. They're both right, if they're kept in their right place, and at the right time. So, there we've got now, the threefold division of the Acts of the Apostles. Everything fits and falls into its place, by observing this word sent. Unto you first, says Peter, Christ was sent. In the middle, to you, whether you're Jew or Gentile, this word is sent. Acts 28, Israel go out into their present blindness, and the salvation of God is sent to the Gentile. You will notice some differences. In verse 23, he, he persuaded them concerning Jesus. If you go read a bit further down, in verse 31, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching those things which concern Jesus. No, 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 no. When he's speaking to the Jew, he spoke about Jesus. When he spoke to these Gentiles, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, 
in verse 23, out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. No reference to Moses. No reference to the law and the prophets. Why? Had Paul given up the Bible? No. He was writing a Bible or a part of it himself. And he tells you distinctly that what he had to say as the prisoner was something that was hid in God. Hid away from all generations and ages, but only at that time revealed. So that we're not honouring God by saying, oh, I can see all about this church of the one body in the types and shadows of Genesis. Well, if you do, God said that he had hid it so effectually that it was hid in God and hidden away from generations until the time of revelation here. Well, then we come a stage further with regard to this question. Take, for instance, the uh, thought of the envelope. There's that little booklet that we have here as it was mentioned by Mr. Canning. The, whenever you pick up a letter, I don't suppose you keep this law of the Medes and Pharisees, what it is, but have you never sat down and slit open somebody's letter and, oh, you say, sorry, pass it over, see? Well, that's all right. But there's no need to be acting like that in the book because we've got time and, and thought. And before we look at any part of the Bible and try to put it into practice, we ought to at least see whether we are included or excluded from it. Now, you may have to look and search, but sometimes it's actually given, like James, very conveniently, puts the address on the envelope in the first verse. Now, the word James is the English way of saying Jacob. And don't ask me why. But if you want uh, furniture that goes back to the time of King James, you ask for Jacobean, you see. So this is Jacob, a servant of God, out of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Now, that's a letter sent by the Lord to the twelve tribes who were scattered abroad. You are permitted to read what your father sent to one of his children, but he doesn't expect you, because you've read the letter, to go and do everything that's in it. You don't do that in the ordinary affairs. I go back, of course, many, many years ago, but I had... I've got to be watchful here. I don't know whether they're all here or not. I had uh, seven sisters. I don't think any of them are here now. They've gone, some of them, seven sisters. And uh, we were a very happy family. And the mantelpiece was just like a letter rack, you know, until we reached a certain age. And then we put the letters in our pocket or our bag or whatever. <laughs> but if we did accidentally pick up a letter that was addressed to one of the others, we didn't say, oh, now I've read it immediately, I must go out and do it. Oh, no, we say, we oh, I apologise, you see. Well, because you read in James that if any are sick, the elders are called together, they anoint him with oil and pray over him and he shall recover, that doesn't follow that if it's going to happen to me, I've had it done to me. Without asking my permission, one lady, oh, she came to my rescue, she anointed me with oil and nothing happened. See? I don't belong to that calling. I've got no guarantee. I find the Apostle Paul being sorry that he left behind a damned servant, Epaphroditus, sick near unto death, 
Whereas in the earlier part of his ministry, a handkerchief sent from the body of the Apostle Paul cured somebody. So you have to be so careful, lest you make the word of God as an effect by failing to observe the things that differ. So there we have the address on the envelope. And if you just turn to Peter, you'll find that it's not quite so explicit, but good enough. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered, that's the same word, the dispersion, throughout Pontus. Well, so we read Peter. But when I read Peter 2, chapter 2, it says in verse 5, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Well, I say, oh, I've got to go watchful here. I'm not so sure that I'm a holy part of a holy priesthood. I know the people of Israel are destined to be a kingdom of priests. So these Israelites who did believe they were a part of that wonderful calling. But there's no priesthood so far as I'm concerned. And this may shock some of you, if you don't weigh it over. If you read the epistle to the Hebrews, you'll find the word priest and high priest over and over and over again. And then if you read every epistle that Paul wrote, apart from that one, read every epistle he wrote, and every address he gave to anybody, he never once, throughout the whole of his ministry recorded, uses the word priest at all. Now, you haven't lost anything. Because Job offered sacrifices for his family and he wasn't a priest. And Abraham offered a sacrifice and he wasn't a priest. The priest's element belongs to the people of Israel. And we have in Christ our head all that a priest could be and all that a king could be and all that a prophet could be and all the lot together is one. So we lost nothing. But we don't mix it, you see. And so... I, I'm glad to read James. I'm glad to read Peter. But I'm conscious that I'm reading about another calling. And Peter, you remember in his epistle, at the end, he says, um, just as our brother Paul in his epistle writing, there's many things there hard to be understood. Peter says that, you see. Because it was a different calling. So when we come, when we say we believe all scripture, we can't believe it all if we don't believe we've got to rightly divide it. You see, that's only smudging together what God has kept separate. Well then, if we come a stage further, the, um, let me see just how far I've got. The um, testimony of the Apostle Paul, which we find given us in the opening chapters of Ephesians has a series of statements which are, the, are themselves unique and for the next few minutes I'm not going to tax you or tax myself too much but the next few minutes let's look at some of the things that differ in the opening verses of Ephesians and see whether we don't gain rather than lose by observing these differences First of all, you do know that there's a uh, a question as to whether the word Ephesus comes or doesn't come in the first verse. Some manuscripts leave a blank. 
And the obvious reason is that it was to be a circular letter and the name was filled in because they were also told, the Colossians were told to read the epistle to the Laodiceans. They exchanged them. And you may say to me, now I'm going to put you into a corner. Uh, this epistle is addressed to the saints which are at Ephesus. Well, you've never been to Ephesus. Well, why do you take this epistle to yourself? Or will I say, the word Ephesus is accidental. It could be addressed to any city. But the character to whom it's addressed isn't. So we'll look at the character in chapter 2. Verse 12. Or verse 11. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. So there's a change from Romans 9. My brethren in the flesh who are called Israelites. Now he says you were Gentiles in the flesh. And then in verse 12. And at that time ye were without Christ. Now, Romans 9 says that Israel, one of their distinctive blessings was that concerning Christ, concerning the flesh, Christ came. In a sense, Israel were never without the promise of the Messiah. But the Gentile had no such promise. He didn't know a word about it. Being aliens from the commonwealth or citizenship of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Now that is the character to which the epistle to the Ephesians is addressed. So whether you have a blank, or whether you have the word Ephesus, or whether you have the chapel of the open book, or your own private address, that is the character of the poor, alien, outside Gentile to whom this message is peculiarly addressed while Israel are in their present blindness. So that's one thing that differs, isn't it? Now, just in the first chapter, we have an emphasis upon spiritual blessings. Verse 3. And while you may say all blessings in the scripture must be spiritual if they come from God, it's not so written. God said in the Old Testament if they kept his law he would bless them in basket and in store. Now, spiritual is not used for something which is holy but something which is opposite to that which has to do with the visible or to do with the earthly or to do with the flesh even in a good sense. So when you look at the word spiritual in chapter 6 verse 12 for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Now, they cannot be holy, can they? If they're the rulers of the darkness of this world, they're called spiritual wickedness. You couldn't say spiritual wickedness if spiritual meant holy. These are not flesh and blood enemies. They're spiritual enemies. And in chapter 1, it's not flesh and blood blessings, it's spiritual blessings. So that you've got to be careful when you read promises made to the children of Israel that God would enlarge their fields and give them bountiful crops and so on. Because if that were true today, you see, I'd rub my eye along the seats here and I'd say, oh, what a ho- I won't point to anybody, what a holy man that must be. Look at the size of his watch chain. 
It doesn't follow that because you believe God and seek to follow his word that you'll have a good big bank balance. Not a bit. So these are spiritual blessings. That's where it differs. In heavenly places. Well, that's the first time that word is, occurs in the New Testament. Now, don't interject and say, what about our Heavenly Father? No, this is a peculiar expression. In heavenly places occurs only five times in the New Testament, and the whole five are found in Ephesians. It's where Christ sits at the right hand of God. The next reference is in chapter 1, and it says, about the power, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Where is that? Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And we are told in um, chapter 2 that verse 6, we have been raised together and made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. So that heavenly places is where Christ now sits at the right hand of God and this company in Ephesians are those who are reckoned to have died with him, been raised with him and potentially even now seated with him. Surely that must be something different from the promise in the Sermon on the Mount the meek shall inherit the earth. It's a wonderful thing to inherit the earth. But to inherit the earth is one sphere of blessing. To be seated where Christ sits at the right hand of God, far above all principality, far above all heavens, as it goes on in chapter 4, must be kept distinct, otherwise, why should it be written? And then we come back to Ephesians 1 again, and it says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, leaving the word foundation without altering for the moment, there are expressions, that deal with a period from the foundation of the world, in connection with Matthew's kingdom teaching, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The names of the martyrs go right back to Abel from the foundation of the world. But this is before the foundation of the world. And it only occurs three times in the New Testament. And the other two refer to Christ. In John 17, thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And in Peter, Christ is verily set forth as a lamb without blemish and without spot, verily ordained before the foundation of the world. So Christ was loved before the foundation of the world and he was without spot before the foundation of the world. And here's the wonder of it. The only other occurrence is that the members of the body of Christ in Ephesians are loved and they are without spot. What a testimony. What the Father sees in his beloved Son, he sees in you and in me, so far as we're in him, not outside of him, of course, for this has to be in Christ. And then it goes on to say, in verse um, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now, when the angel came to the Virgin Mary, he said, Hail thou highly favoured among women. 
And that's the word used here. Used of Mary, the mother of our Saviour. And used of these poor, far-off Gentiles who have been made members of the body of Christ, accepted in the beloved. Well now, I don't want to pretend, but uh, you do know that I've had to have hospital treatment and uh, I'm not so young as I used to be, except I trust in spirit. And I hope that you won't feel that I've cheated you if I say I think I should be wise if I accepted my limitations and leave these thoughts with you. That the unity that we are entrusted with demands the differences that we observe. And the more we observe the differences in a right spirit, the more the unity will become a reality. And so, I commend to you the words of our brother this afternoon and the few words that I've been able to add to it this evening. It's a great joy to see you friends. You've come, many of you, from long distances. And although we have a very small company here many times, yet it's a great joy to me to think that God has permitted me to live long enough to know that some of the messages that are given in this chapel within a month will be listened to by folks in America and Australia and in New Zealand and various other parts of the English-speaking world that I shall never know in this life, but I hope to meet them in the days that are to come. You will remember our work and the need that God shall provide those who shall be stalwart for the faith, that there shall be those given who will also stand by the same grace that has enabled some to come so far. And as far as you're able, be pleased to use the literature with which we are connected as a means to quicken interest or deepen the understanding. So I'll leave the remainder of the meeting in the good hands of our chairman, Mr Ball, and thank you all, every one of you, for the lovely support that you have given today and all the prayers that I know have gone up on behalf of this ministry.